Hey guys, Matt Gurney here. Nice to be back with you after a few days in London. We weren't able to do a podcast last week because I was away and then Jen went out and got strep throat again, but she's back on her feet. I kind of know what time zone I'm actually in right now. Time to do a podcast. We didn't uh, come up with a great plan for the podcast this week. We each had a couple of stories we wanted to throw at the other here. But almost kind of without meaning to, we realized there was a common theme linking most of what we had to say. The theme is the crazification or the bonkersification of our society right now. And these are glib, casual terms for very serious problems, lethal problems. In fact, uh, as uh, unfortunately was proven true in eastern Ontario uh, about a day before we recorded this podcast... So stick around. We hope you enjoy, if that's the word, this latest episode of the Lines Experimental Podcast. Hi, Jen. Hi. I'm back from Blighty. Uh, and how was Blighty? Interesting. I'm, gl- I'm, yeah. glad, I'm glad I went to see it. Um, it. Interesting just to see how much has changed and how much hasn't changed. I hadn't been to the UK in a long, in a long time, and I'm not a regular visitor there. I mean... Mm-hmm. Anyone who wants me to become a regular visitor to Europe should subscribe to the line today so I can blow more money on transatlantic vacations. Um, But I had been there before. And one of the things I've been noticing, and I don't know if I'm just getting older or if Toronto's just getting bigger, but I no longer have the Torontonian travels abroad is amazed reflex. Hmm. Toronto, I think, is now a big enough city that I fly to other cities. I'm like, I'm still in the city. Hmm. Um, London's great, though. Uh, London is amazing. Well, it's, I I think, you know, I I, hear I'm kind of immediately disproving my own thesis of saying, I don't do the Toronto, the Torontonian goes abroad and is amazed thing. It's interesting to go to cities that have figured out the shit that Toronto is still too dumb and immature to figure it out. Hmm. Um, I've, I've said many times before, I think Toronto is undergoing an awkward adolescence where it's sort of really leveled up in terms of its size and its scale but it still thinks of itself as like this sleepy 1960s suburban thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there was something I mentioned in one of the dispatches is like in Toronto, when there's a big public works project, you know, like somebody zip ties like a cardboard placard to the fence. And it's like project number X, Y, two, Talk, call your counselor here to bitch and moan about it. Or in London, it's like artistic murals and a little history lesson of like the first pneumatic tube system train on this site was built in 1822 and it's just amazing it's like they just do that stuff better and then i tune into local politics here and it's just totally brain dead uh speaking of totally brain dead politics though you want to get me caught up on the alberta election yeah it's completely stupid everything's stupid i mean all i can tell you is that the ucp campaign has the distinct tone of um goat wrangling going on at this point um, the primary stories have been crazy shit Danielle Smith has said in the past and her responses to them. And I mean, the only takeaway I have from it is just so much of Danielle Smith's previous wackadoodle commentary. And some of it is wackadoodle commentary. You know, it's hard to even understand what she's trying to say because she's speaking in such a, she has this habit of speaking in such an elliptical way that you, you can read what you want to read into it or not read what you don't want to read into it. So, you know, recently there was a, a, a one where she was talking about allegedly comparing everybody who um, uh, took the vaccine to like Hitler's supporters. And that's not that's not what she actually said, but that's the way that her supporters presented it. What she, I think, was trying to say was the way that people were treating um, unvaccinated people at the height of the pandemic. You could kind of see how tyranny operated with that model. But 
if you're going to make a, a comment like that, you have to be sure to be really clear about what you're don't. saying and it, and just don't, and it just wasn't don't. clear. And it just, it, you know, it also just, and, and then of course, you know, she got bum rushed when she was making an announcement at the hospitals because the NDP is making claims about how she wants to privatize all the hospitals, which is also kind of bullshit, but it's just stupid. I don't know. I don't have nothing to say. I, I nothing about this inspires me in the least. It's just. Are any of the poll numbers moving? still a wash it's still 50 50 which means i mean which tells you 50 the conservatives win oh so 50 the conservatives win but the fact that it's 50 50 is in and of itself a sign of extraordinary lack of faith in daniel smith there was um, so like it's like you can read them but read those polls both ways there's something it was interesting someone pointed out the other day i don't remember who it was um might have been john michael mcgrath i don't know if it was or not but someone just pointed out that if the polls right now carried through to the vote, what that would result in would be actually a fairly resounding NDP defeat with more public vote share than Doug Ford's crushing victory. Yeah. So like Doug Ford got like 40-ish percent of the vote. I don't remember the exact number. And he won like 83 seats out of 120 something where it looks like Notley's cruising for 2% higher than that and losing. And I actually, I got intrigued by that. So I started to look through federal elections. The, again, assuming Notley's numbers stay around 43 and they might not, like I'm just using that as a round number. That would mean she would be defeated with a higher percentage of the popular vote of every victorious Canadian government since 1988. Which is crazy, but that's Alberta. Um, the NDP's vote share is very wildly inefficient, so they have yeah. to be above 50. But also, even as the actual polling numbers in the parties are 50-50, Notley's approval rating is wildly above Smith's. So, like, it's a really, really bizarre read, and it's hard to read where this is, and I, I don't want to read anything into the polls this far out, to be perfectly blunt. We're talking about Notley's approval ratings being really high and just how Alberta's politics are very weird. Yeah, I was saying she, 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 she's a very popular person who leads a very unpopular party. And Daniel Smith is a very um, unpopular person who leads a relatively popular party. Relatively popular. I mean, I mean, Hey, that's, that's the secret sauce. That's the secret sauce for volatility. Yeah. And also it's been pretty much, I mean, the other thing that I think the campaign isn't quite prepared for is that like, all the oppo is going to start dropping now. And it's going to be a steady strip of just crazy things Daniel Smith has said from now until election day. Mm. So I've been, like I said, I've been, I've been watching this from abroad and it's been interesting. Um, interesting, but unsurprising. Uh, I don't think this one's resonating bigly outside of uh, no. uh, the, the kind of the usual places. Um, are, are the rest of Canadians watching this? Yeah. But not as much as we would have been watching Jason Kenney. It's no, yeah, and also the other thing too is that it it, it it's been a very domestic election in the yeah. sense that the way that the election's yeah. been run. It it's yep. the major issues have been healthcare and taxes. Like it's not been we're going to take the fight to Ottawa and you know throw eggs at the at the people of Quebec. You know, like that's the, the, it hasn't really been a, an election that's been terribly focused on the national issue or the national agenda. I mean, even pipelines haven't really come up. This is much very to much Quebec's a, relief. Yeah, this is this has been very much a, a duel of of personalities between two people who are, you know, very diametrically opposed, not just ideologically but in temperament. So, I mean, it's it's been interesting from that perspective. But it, it you know, I, I've noticed the lack of calls from 
national publications looking for me to be on a radio show or whatever. Well, I'll keep reading that the occasional update. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I don't even know if what, what's to write. I'm just, I'm kind of. Mm. Eh, I mean, look, I mean, I would say write that. I, I, I honestly do think that's interesting. And then our, our Alberta readers will probably agree and our national readers will probably benefit from having that laid out for them. The other wild card though is happening. And, um, you and I talked a little bit about this uh, on the phone earlier in the week, kind of when I was, I kind of knew roughly what time zone I was in. And you and I had a quick catch up chat. And I asked you about these uh, wildfires, uh, which is to mm. the extent that there's a national story right now coming out of Alberta, it's not the election, it's wildfires. Yeah, it's the wildfires. And actually, also how the respective leaders have responded to the wildfires. Um, so here's where I'm tricky because you and I were talking about, you know, is there something that we at the line should do? Should I be packing up my SUV and heading north to go check out the wildfires? I'm in Calgary, which, I mean, if you look at a map is several hundred kilometers away from the nearest wildfire and there's nothing but gorgeous weather here. Um, but my, my first instinct was honestly, no. And, and not because I don't enjoy covering breaking news and, and major natural disasters. Obviously I, I have a yen for that kind of thing, but, um, mostly it's because bluntly, this isn't as big a wildfire as previous major catastrophes have been. Um, the Fort McMack fires and the Slave Lake fires in previous years were were much more serious and catastrophic, not necessarily in terms of amount of area burned, but certainly in terms of human lives affected. Mm -hmm. um, there are lots of people. I mean, I think there were almost 30,000 people who had been evacuated. That was less than half of 2016. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I'm not aware of anybody who's died and the type and the areas that are affected are places like Edson, Grand Prairie. I mean, these are, I don't mean to trash Edson or Grand Prairie, but I mean, these are relatively small centers yeah. of population. So, you know, we are going to be heading into a heat dome. It's going to be a hot couple of days. You know, you could see the wind shift. You could see things get much, much, much worse. Um, so I don't want to say this. That it won't. But then the other issue that I have with this is that for me, this is almost starting to feel very much like a new normal. Every couple of years, we have big wildfires in early May in northern Alberta. That just seems to be the, the, the new pattern now. So, you know, to me, for to get my interest, I mean, I know this is just this is this is the evil Machiavellian news instinct editor in me talking. But to me, to get my interest now. It's it's not new. It's not new anymore. And it's also, you know, it has to be way, way bigger than previous years, or it has to be at least on par with previous years to generally get my attention, if that makes sense. In, it's in a weird way. Oh, you know what, like, sorry, you're, we're talking about is the Columbine effect. That's the Columbine how, effect, yeah. After, how after Columbine, every school shooting that came in under that, and this is actually something at the time, like there was kind of like some real soul searching going on at news networks and in journalists. And I remember the coverage yeah. at the time. If a school shooting only killed like five people, like do you interrupt? Like do you yeah. like do you cut into regular programming? And yeah, so it, it's, yeah, a, it's it's a it's, nasty thing, but it's real. But it's real, and and uh, that's kind of how I feel a little bit about this one. It does seem to me like there's more interest in the rest of the country for these wildfires than there were in previous years, even yeah. though this particular wildfire isn't as big as in previous years, and maybe that's just because there's also an election going on um i just think it's, I'm, not, I'm not sure i think it's slow i mean i don't i mean mm, quebec yeah, media is freaking out about like the status of the french language in the year 2100 you know ontario it's like we're just talking the leafs go leafs go big game tonight i'm gonna watch it in my backyard i i, I talked um it was I, I spoke with susan delacourt of the toronto star about this uh on a, on a cbc radio program uh Pia was hosting. It was, it was the Sunday magazine show, um, and we were just talking about 
said to them, I feel like silly season arrived early this year. Along where, with the beautiful weather. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it's just weather, but it's just like May, and we're only we're not that far into May. It feels like late June. And I just yeah. don't mean the nice weather. I just mean all the political stories are stupid. All the politicians are miserable. Yeah. Everybody's snapping at each other over stupid bullshit. So, yeah, I, look, I, my instinct was to ask you if uh, the wildfires were worth covering. But if not, okay. Well, I they're worth, they're worth doing a dispatch dispatch on, but I don't think that they're worth for, for a, uh, you know, an outlet that is of limited size and scope of like like ours. I'm not convinced that it's worth the worth they're worth sending me out for at this point. Um, maybe I'll feel differently next week. Well, I'll tell you this though, you know, back, you know, in the year 2100, you know, when the French language is spoken only by seven dudes in the country of Canada with its population of a hundred million. If Canada even exists by then. People will look back at what you and I are saying right now and be like, Oh, those early climate change people were so quick to adapt to what was happening around them. We are the frogs in the boiling pot right now. Sure. Well, aren't we all? Yep. Let's talk about people being stupid. Yeah, passports. See, I didn't even need to set that up. So we got a new <laughs> passport design this week. And I let me go on the record of saying I dislike it. I think it's ugly. Mm -hmm. um, but I just tweeted purely as a laugh. Everything feels broken, which is what Pierre Polyev says about stuff. And it was completely intended tongue-in-cheek. And I think about 50% of people who read that got it. And about 50% of people, all of them passionate Justin Trudeau supporters, lost their minds. Well, that's because we know that there is a Twitter-based Justin Trudeau cult that has lost any capacity to see humor. Or feel joy, for that matter. I because I had the exact same experience because I reacted to the the passports initially just purely on an aesthetic level like like let's let's talk about you know the 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 deeper analysis of ripping the historical figures off of the out of the the pages like just it's ugly it's an ugly piece of design and I was analyzing it as a piece of design and why it was ugly and I just hated it and I made some some over the top joking remarks about how I was going to be like a single issue voter as a result of this and like the backlash from the absolute usual suspects of humorless scolds who represent the Truanon crowd was so predictable and so like hilarious at the same time. Like I couldn't tell you what I found to be more hilarious. The conservative types who were losing their minds about the passport or the Truanon types who were losing their minds about the conservative types losing their minds about the passport. It's this is this is my memification thesis in real life where we have a fairly minor one day story that both sides are weaponizing for a meme war to rally their troops drive their fundraising build their lists nothing is being served by it in a policy sense but it's great politics. This okay, but, is but, why but, we are. But fun. the passports are really ugly, and if I can't like, I think they're, like, I think they're ugly. And if they can't, and if I can't sit around and just trash the ugly new passports on Twitter, what joy is there left in the world, man? Oh yeah, one of the things someone said to me was, "Oh, you must be having such a great life if this is the only thing you have to worry about." And I'm like, I got a lot of things to worry about. Normal human beings are capable of having more than one thing on their mind at once. I'm sorry this seems to be something you struggle with. I just um, like can I can I just not hate something on Twitter? 
What is the internet for? Wherefore thou art Twitter, if I can't just hate something on Twitter? Something as silly as a passport redesign. Anyway, the whole thing actually inspired me to write a column for the Globe, so I did. That's so funny. I managed to like to to monetize that weaponized content for a Globe col column, and then I put it out with like a haughty. For those of you who have not been enlightened by my previous tweets, here are my thoughts on the passport redesign and why you plebeians have no taste. It, it really does. It's it's a useful further <laughs> reminder, though, as as if any was needed. But it's a useful further reminder that. Being a culture warrior destroys your brain. Mm -hmm, yeah. It is a really powerful drug. I remember reading years ago, I think it was meth. People who were doing a lot of meth because having sex on meth apparently was amazing. Mm -hmm. But it was so amazing. It like destroyed their ability to actually have like normal sex later. Because like, like the neurons in their brain were destroyed. That's kind of what I think all these people fighting about everything on Twitter are doing to themselves. Like... Not only are they probably hurting themselves, but they're going to find that real life no longer brings them any satisfaction because they've just broken their brain so thoroughly here. Like I sent a three word tweet that triggered dozens of responses and a couple of people kind of clued in eventually and they're like, oh, okay. Like a few people had the good grace to be like, mm, all right. Yeah. I realized now that you were kidding and I totally walked into that. I, I, I'm embarrassed. But I was like, whatever, like, don't worry about it. But some people, <laughs> excuse me, will just never admit that they were wrong about that. And it's like, you weren't joking. You're just trying to embarrass me. Buddy, you're, <laughs> you don't need any help on that front, friend. <laughs> no, I mean, so Archie Mann, who's a, 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 a journalist acquaintance of our both, and I think he he's in New York now. He basically, uh, when, when the, the passport first came out, was like, oh my God, these are awful. This is embarrassing. Sorry, who is this? Canada, kind of Archie. Archie, remember Archie? Oh yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, anyway, so he, and I think he retweeted me or something, which was his first mistake, because we first know that the, the best way to like throw a stick right in the hornet's nest is to retweet Jen Gerson. That's, that, that just pisses Truen on off. But anyway, so then the next day he tweeted something to the effect of like, I actually cover incels for a living. And like, the shit I got online for disliking the passport was a thousand times worse than anything I have received from the incel squad. You true and on people are batshit. I'm like, welcome to my world, Archie. Welcome to my world. The so, funny thing uh, is, if you were actually to plot political radicalization, I think liberals have probably actually lost their minds the least. Like, I think you'd see way more fringe and the conservatives and, and the NDP because we're in a really polarized era and that's what happens on the fringes. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the cult of personality online, the liberals yeah. are by far the craziest. Oh, yeah. yeah, I, yeah like, yeah, I would like, like the median voter is probably the less, the least wildly fluctuating with polarization, but the online persona is bonkers. So here's what I would say is that I would say like the crazy conservatives have gone crazy in the sense that they're losing their minds over the transgender people in the library. Like they're like, they're losing their, their minds over issues and like the decline of the West. And like, I think there's an intelligent way to have that conversation. And there's a batshit crazy way to have that conversation or they're getting sucked into conspiracy theories. And that's where they're kind of losing their mind. Occasionally, they'll pick a target who they just hate, who they sort of see as representing that. Yep. 
So I'm not I'm not trying to get the, to, to say that the conservative crazies aren't bad. They definitely are. Um, but you're right. The liberal crazies are more like they're not so much losing their minds over issues. They're losing their minds over any affront to their leader. Yeah. Even if the affront to their leader is perceived as something as like the passport. It's like the Trudeau, Trudeau personally didn't design it. Just so that we're clear. Like, like it's, uh, oh, you know what? Let me actually speak to that. I, in my POEC uh, coverage, Public Order Emergency Commission, was strongly critical of the performance of the federal government. Mm -hmm. And in, in, in certain platforms online, on the radio or whatever, I, I would be critical of the federal government. And I would get the, the usual suspects, as you've described them, showing up in my mentions or in my email or, or whatever, being livid at me, saying, how dare you criticize Justin Trudeau? Look at Doug Ford abandoning the people of Ontario. And the amazing thing was, never talked about Trudeau. Because I actually don't think Trudeau himself had that much responsibility for the, the convoy reaction. I mean, the buck stops with him in that sense. But like the federal failures I were referring to were the RCMP level. It was um, internal uh, uh, Privy Council level, communications among government staffers. All of the stuff was disclosed in POEC uh, communications that came out. But if you say federal government and you make a criticism like, yeah, I don't think the federal government responded well how fucking dare you criticize the prime minister it's like mm, yeah. wasn't actually like, wasn't i, I you know what I honestly right. think it is certain among us are identified as hostile and yeah and they say is just responded to reflexively yeah absolutely and then also the, the other thing that i think is unique about the uh, liberal true and on types is that there isn't a degree of organization among them that is not you don't see so much with the conservative types like you know there are one or two secret slacks sticking around with these diehard partisan liberal supporters and they're like sharing tweets from hostiles that they hate and then they all gang up at once kind of thing like they like put it this way I, I have muted I think like the same it's the same 150 to 200 people like it's the same people and I've just muted them, which is why when when I piss off the Truanon peeps, I mostly don't even notice it anymore because once you muted the, the 200 people, the, it's silent. Like it's it's not, it's such a confined, weird little bubble. Um, I only but get they, notifications from people who follow me and that has massively cleaned up my list. Yeah, exactly. So like it, it's, it is a relatively small number of people who consistently go after perceived hostiles or whatever whenever you, we say me, anything, Andrew Coyne, you, me, Robert Coyne, Fife, that, and like they, they have the ability to make it seem like it's this really overwhelming like like tide and wave against you but it's not because it's the same smoke. I don't even think it's 200 I think it's closer to 100 it could be even closer to 100 but it feels way worse than it is and also bots and secondary accounts and that but it feels way worse than it is but the second you actually mute these these people it all goes away like you know what's gone. funny? It's it's very bizarre. But anyway, is... I do think I do think that there is a not a not a formal coordination, but there is a quasi coordination to it because it's it's too well timed. It's it's these networks. Like, it does feel like these networks are all chatting about this shit on some secret Slack somewhere. You know what? For what it's worth, I don't I don't necessarily agree with that. Like I, no? I don't okay. I don't necessarily disagree with that. Uh, like I'm not telling you you're wrong. But I have never seen any behavior from uh, that crowd that cannot be explained by them just being online all the time because they're boomers mm. and they're retired and they have nothing mm. else to do. And their yeah. algorithms have dialed in on exactly uh, what will trigger them immediately. So 
you or I or, or uh, Andrew Coyne or someone tweets something or one of the usual suspects tweets something and that's just like mainlined right into their system. Mm. I, I And again, like I'm not disagreeing with you per se because it's very possible that you're right. I just, I don't see anything that people with too much time on their hand and very dialed in algorithms can't explain. Yeah, I mean, that could be it. The reason why I tend to think there's there's a there's a degree of coordination here is because I've also been on the back end of like one of these weird little Twitter Trunon mobs that were based in the weirdest shit. And I'm the one I'm thinking back to is like I made some some like half snarky comment about Sophie Gregoire Trudeau's stupid little podcast. It was like and I said something really actually benign, where it's just like the podcasting era is officially over. Like when Grobar is in there talking about <laughs> mental health, like we're done. The 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 medium's tapped out. Like it really was a completely throwaway benign remark. And I remember just getting the meanest like tweet, and like fifty or sixty people, just nasty, awful, sexist tweets. Um, like go home and die, get raped kind of thing, right? Like, because I had the audacity to make fun of a Sophie Gregoire Trudeau um, a, a podcast about mental health. Well, let me let me reiterate like, it's just, that it's I... just It's just that it was so bizarre. It was so obscure. It was not the sort of thing that would have shown up. And it was, it all happened like these people had shared this in an internal Slack and they were all on me. Like it was well, the most bizarre thing. Well, let me just, first of all, say I disagree with them. <laughs> I do not support that as my Jen Gerson policy. Um, I, you know what? I would just, yeah, okay, yeah, no, fair enough. Um, I, I'm just, my gut feeling is like, every once in a while, I purge all my Google data, and for like a couple of weeks, it doesn't know what music I like, it doesn't know what ads to show me, it doesn't know what to recommend in YouTube, and then all of a sudden, it just after like a couple of weeks, it's just back to normal. It's like it knows exactly. It's like, hey, do you want to listen to some Rush or do you want to watch some Star Trek clips on YouTube? And it takes about like <laughs> it takes like two or three weeks to get that figured out. So when I see coordinated online behavior these days, yeah, it's just I, the I, algorithmic. You're right. No, you're of, right. I, I, I'm, I try not to be conspiratorial about it. It's just there's it's just bizarre sometimes. It really is bizarre. Some of the things that that set that set that crew off. If you ever uh, do kind of do a bulk delete of what Google knows about you, it's hilarious for like the first couple of days because you'll be looking at like your ads like you'll click on like any page and it'll be like i don't know man do you want like maternity wear or do you want <laughs> like it, it doesn't know anything about you but it it takes a while to start figuring it out again and then there was this i remember once shouldn't have done this um i clicked on a maternity wear ad and then i sent like a screen cap of it to a buddy to prove the point of hey, when Google doesn't know who you are, it starts showing you a bunch of like maternity wear stuff. Here's a screen cap from what it sent me. But I guess it was the only ad I clicked on. It Google thought I was pregnant for like two months. It was baby monitors, cribs, diapers, breast pumps. And eventually it started to be like, actually, we think this guy really likes hockey. But it was still like <laughs> mixed with maternity wear, and then eventually it yeah, eventually it purged out. Um, I want to I want to mention um something, and it, you you were just uh, actually you know what totally, totally forgot what I was going to say. I had a point to make a minute ago. What the hell were we talking about a minute ago? Well, we were just talking about like just how this is stupid. It anyway, is stupid. It is stupid. This is all just stupid. This is this is politics memification that like how should I say this? You should be able to like 
dislike a passport redesign without this being a culture war issue. But I mean, I guess this is this is where we are now, and that's fine. Um, the other thing that I forgot to bring up was apparently apparently in British Columbia, they are taking down some of the tent cities in East East Hastings, which has proven to be interesting and controversial. Um, the only thing that I wanted to say about that, and I think I've mentioned it on this podcast before, is that I went to um, Vancouver last June when my grandmother died. And I drove through East Hastings in Maine because I was curious, I hadn't been back to Vancouver in many, many years. Which is, uh, just for the national audience, mm. I know what you're talking about, but that is... That's 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 ground center of like fentanyl and crack. Like it's yeah. it 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 is probably one of the worst drug tent city slums in North America. And I'm not even kidding. Like it's it's could be top five. Could be top five. And I, I suspect, depending on the year, top three, maybe top one. Yeah. So um it's all been around, it's been a problem for decades. Uh it's a place where people will just just openly do drugs in the middle of broad daylight on the street the violence is rampant you know unless you are a fairly hardened individual you know you can't walk through that area it's just not you can't walk a normal person can't walk through that area you can't do it um you know the the sex work is open and and prevalent uh the drug abuse is open and prevalent and it's now increasingly become a, a tent city just just open tent city um and you know this was this was this has been a problem back in the '90s. I remember visiting through, or driving through here and visiting through here back when I was a teenager. And so I was just curious, you know, has it gotten any better? Of course, we've seen a lot of harm reduction measures come through the city, uh, particularly uh, on site, which is uh, where people are supposed to be able to go to shoot up heroin without worrying about overdosing. And those harm reduction things, uh, you know, the efficacy of those things aside, I couldn't help but notice that things have not gotten better. Like, like East Hastings is not safer, cleaner, less chaotic now than it was when I was a teenager. In fact, it's been, it's gotten noticeably worse. The tent city has gotten noticeably larger, which raised the question for me about, in Canadian politics, we always talk about inputs, but not outputs. We talk about the money that we're spending on mental health. We talk about the money we're spending on harm reduction. We talk about the money we're putting into this or that. And also the policy changes we've the made that pat ourselves on the back for how blah, we're doing blah, blah. things differently yeah. now. But we literally don't track or attach any of those inputs to outputs. So what would be the met point at which you would decide that harm reduction had been a successful or unsuccessful policy? Like what what would be the outcome? What would be the what would be the actual metric that we could put a pin in? and say, this has been a successful policy, or either this has been an unsuccessful policy. Like, what would uh, be the point, what would be the size of the tent city? At, how big would that tent city have to get before the city would like, said, you know, this actually, we can't let this get any larger. We can't let this take over the entire downtown. Never. You know, you know, like there's, there, there, when you don't attach any of these policy decisions or, or inputs to specific measurable traceable outputs, then there's no way to decide whether or not your inputs are helping or hurting. There is just no way because there's yeah. it, because it all it all becomes unfalsifiable, right? Like it all it doesn't matter if the overdose rates are going up because we're still doing the right thing with our harm reduction policies. And the answer is more harm reduction policies. You know what I mean? Like you can all you can justify you can justify continuing to do the wrong thing over and over and over and over again as long as you don't have any specific output metrics 
that would tell you when you're or get or goal you you don't have a stated goal right and that's that's kind of where we are and i'm thinking on the drug policy stuff but um it's it's a problem that we have right across the board right there's no stated policy goals or outcomes there's nothing tangential that you could hold a lot of governments to to make them decide okay well this has been successful even on economic metrics you know what what would be the gdp we're trying to get to like what would be like what you know what i mean like what what what's what's our what's our actual outcome what's our goal here what is our stated purpose it's if it, we don't talk like that we just talk about things we want to do it's worse than that though because if you try to talk with them about that you're immediately accused of wanting addicts to die in the street right yeah exactly to even to even discuss outputs is an affront to, to the to the yeah. to, to even discuss uh the outcome of wanting fewer addicts to die in the street is <laughs> treated as like heresy right so what I found interesting about the East Hastings and Maine stuff is, is of course, the usual suspects are are objecting to tearing down these 10 cities. And then you have people like the fire department saying, look, we've had like 400 or 800 fires in the last four months. Like this is, this is not a sustainable reality. You can't just allow this stuff to continue to grow without any kind of um, counter, even if it means taking away people's only options, because like these 10 cities in and of themselves are dangerous. Um, so I just found that the, the decision by Vancouver to finally start cleaning some of that stuff up was really interesting. How bad did it, was it really getting that they actually finally bit the bullet and got it done? Um, and it just kind of brought to me to the thought along the standing thoughts I've had about lack of outcome conversations. It's interesting because I really wish I remember, like when we were talking about the liberal stuff, something occurred to me and I wanted to tell you, but totally gone now. Um, I guess this is actually, though, a natural segue to to my serious offering um, for the podcast today. Uh, yesterday, Thursday, two in the morning, uh, there was a nine one one call in a town in eastern Ontario. Three OPP officers arrived, uh, and they were ambushed. Uh, that's what the the latest r- reports tell us. Um, they were they were fired upon. Uh, one of the officers, uh, uh, Sergeant Eric Mueller, was killed. Uh, wife and two kids at home, two young kids. Both other officers were hit, one of them critically injured, but is recovering, and the other one, minor injuries. The suspect was uh, taken alive. And the reason I bring this up is because you and I have talked about this before, and I don't honestly remember if we've talked about it on the podcast before. Maybe I have, I just don't remember, but I have told you directly that I actually track this stuff a little bit, not like mm-hmm. not like a, a policy researcher, but I kind of keep a running tally in my head. You should start a... a um, they, I don't have to because there are other people doing it already. Oh, but, fair enough. Okay. Uh, what's What I had t- told you months ago is that I said I think cops are dying at a much higher rate than usual in Canada. And yeah, the the evidence backs me up on that. And then further to that, Cops are not only dying at a much higher rate than normal, they're dying because they're being ambushed and specifically targeted. So we had in the Toronto area a few months ago, a cop who had just come off a training exercise pops into a Tim Hortons. He's eating a sandwich and a guy who'd been observed by witnesses to be hanging around the Tims for hours that day. As soon as the cop goes in and sits down, he comes in and he shoots him in the back of the head. Hmm. We've had uh, officers in the Simcoe area, uh, two of them killed in ambush uh, with a, by someone waiting for them. 
We've had uh, this latest incident in in eastern Ontario, which again, preliminary information only, but it does again seem to have been a deliberate ambush for officers here. And this is purely speculative on my part. I, I can't confirm this. I don't even know how I could confirm this, but let me tell you what I'm worried about. I'm worried that part of our post-COVID weirdness societally is manifesting in Canada as deliberate violent assaults on police officers. And I mentioned this to you yesterday. I talked about it on my radio show this morning. And then this afternoon, there was an attack on a police station in British Columbia. One officer uh, injured, but seems to be okay. It was a ramming attack in the parking lot. And so I think we should uh, the, be the careful assailant that was shot by officers and is alive at last report. So I think we should be careful here. We're not accusing um, sort of anti-COVID protesters of shooting police or anything like that. I think that we're talking not about something. Not an organized something... way. No, no. I think we're talking about something much more diffuse than that. And I think that it's oh, also yeah. part and yeah, parcel yeah. with with the weird increases of very, very bizarre, random, desensitized violence we've been seeing across the society as a whole. On the Toronto Transit Commission, in Toronto homeless Transit shelters, Com- in parks. In Edmonton, we saw a mother and a, and a and, and her kid randomly stabbed to death and like a school like it just it, you know it's the starbucks stabbing like like yep. these sorts of violence acts of violence it's not that random violence wasn't a thing in the past it, the kid did happen on occasion but it was rare and now it's increasingly not rare and to what extent is it just indicative of a society that's gone a little freaking loopy a little fucking crazy a little fucking crazy you know i was tra- i was saying to people when i talked about this on my radio show before the british columbia attack today If you have a tiny percentage of your population that is crazy and does bad things, and then you increase the size of that tiny percentage of your population, still overall a small number, but it's a bigger number, your number of crazy bad things is going to go up too. Like this stuff is going to scale. And you and I have talked a lot about the problems we've been having where I think we're operating in a kind of a social deficit right now. Whereas pre-pandemic, we had a bunch of social ills and we had coping mechanisms to deal with them. But now everybody's exhausted and burnt out and our, our coping mechanisms are less effective and all the problems. Well, and, there's, and there's like and there's like 10% less staff yep. at, every, at every level, right? Yeah. If, that's if all you lose takes. 10% of your resources and your problem gets 10% worse, congrats, you're now at a 20% deficit. Yeah. What's interesting though is random violence is random. Targeting cops isn't. That's like right. that's like that's no a, no there's a they're a distinct phenomenon but i yeah. think they're that they're caused by the same overall social dislocation yep. you yep. know what i mean like yeah there's more crazy people out there just people being crazy and being crazy in different ways why didn't they just take up sewing or baking like the fucking rest of us but like start a substack magazine start a um, substack magazine yeah so I almost never talk about mass shootings in the United States. I've retired from that topic. It it wasn't doing good things to my mental outlook. Um, I covered them closely for years. And every time there was another one of these damn things, I would write up a good piece in the National Post and I'd say, hey, this one seems to fit the pattern of this kind of attack. Here's what we know about the shooter. Here's what we know about the response times. Because all these things are lessons learned, right? Like you can always look at them and you can say, hey, how was the police response? Or how was the frontline medical response? Was there good enough security at the site? And for years and years and years, I was able to compartmentalize my feelings and my intellect into different boxes. And I could really study this stuff. 
but I think it was a combination of Sandy Hook and 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 being a dad myself. I kind of lost the like those walls yeah. came down. Yeah, and it was. I remember after the San Bernardino shooting in California, I didn't sleep the night after that, and then I just kind of went, "Yeah, you know what? I'm retired. Like I'm not writing about mass yeah. shootings in the United States yeah. anymore." You gotta I'm stop. You gotta, you gotta know when to quit. Um, but I I'm gonna bend that rule here. So I went back and I looked at multi-year statistics for mass shootings in the United States. I think it's, I think the 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 de- I think the working definition here is something like more than four victims in one location in a confined period of time. Yeah. Um, they are up massively since 2012. Oh, there were like three in Texas last weekend. I know, but kind of what you said before at the very beginning, talking about the wildfires, right? Like we're the frogs in the, in the hot pot. So I wanted to go and actually look at the numbers. They're up 50 to 75%. So if you look at kind of, the, if you look at the 2000 teens, you're seeing mass shooting incidents uh, using a standard definition in the United States, bouncing around somewhere around 400. Um, bad year, they'd be higher. Good year, they'd be a bit lower than that. But that was the range. Mm-hmm. We're now in the high 600s. And, oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, this year is already coming in hot. We're, we're overperforming. Uh, the, the in, in the wise. U.S., you mean? In the yeah, U.S. Yeah, uh, the United yeah, States. Okay. Uh, we're coming in hot on this one. And I'm kind of wondering, and this is a really shitty thought. Like, I'm not, I'm not enjoying thinking about this. But I wonder if a targeting of police officers for deliberate murder is going to be a Canadian pathology yeah. in the same way that going Mass into shootings. a shopping mall and blowing away a bunch of people is an American pathology. Yeah, and and, and they're both reflections of the same sort of crazification. 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 Let's call it crazification. It's all like it's all crazification too, but it's the same bonk, idea. Yeah, exactly. It's all it's all it's all um, part and parcel with the same crazification with largely the same same causes. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't it would make sense to me that mass shootings wouldn't be such a feature in Canada because of a our comparatively more restricted access to guns. We're just different. We're different, psychologically different. Also, we're less dense. Like we're, we're you know the the you know bluntly we don't have as many people. So I think that might actually be weirdly a factor. Um, but yeah, shooting cops and just sort of random stabbings would be the thing, the the, the weird sort of um, manifestation of crazification in Canada. I, that would make sense to me, particularly on transit. Yeah, right? and the thing is too, and I to any to any law enforcement who's listening to me right now or any family of law enforcement, I I want you guys to understand. I don't mean this crassly. Cops here are, don't matter. I think like it could have like I could easily have imagined this being postal workers or landscapers or crossing yeah. guards. Yeah. I don't know why in the Canadian context it seems to be cops. Maybe it's because of the scrutiny cops have been under recently. Maybe it's some of the the, uh, the BLM or the there's the there's there's, stuff. there's there's also something about the sort of the uh, strong reaction to to or the strong rejection of deference to authority. Authority, that, that, yeah, which that we've is, been talking is, about lately. Well, this is and this goes down to a breakdown of what happens in, in to social breakdowns in high trust societies. Yep. You know where you know, you obviously would go through um, uh, authority. So the more organized types of violence would potentially go after someone like yep. a cop. Where in the U.S. you don't have that deference to authority in the same way. So you know, just random chaos becomes the more obvious pathology. Yeah, I think, and again, just so the so that any copper or family thereof doesn't misunderstand me, I don't mean you guys don't matter in the sense that I don't care what happens to you. It just means it could have been something else. It could have been another symbol of power. It could have been, like I said, it could have been government buildings. It could have been uh, doctors or health clinics. But for whatever reason, 
And I have a few theories about that, but for whatever reason, I'm starting to get the feeling it's going to be cops, where cops in Canada are going to be targeted uh, until the bonkers goes away. John Wright, our, our buddy here at the line, uh, executive vice president at Meru Public Opinion, he was on my radio show today. And he had some economic numbers and stuff. We were talking about that. But one of the things I like to ask him every few months is sort of take the pulse of the nation, right? Like, because he's a run, he's always running like attitudinal and behavioral surveys kind of in the background of his polls. And I ask him every few months, like, how are we doing? And he has tracked over the course of the pandemic the fact that we've bonkersified, right? Like we have gone more crazy. But what's really upsetting is that it's sticky. It's not going down. That number is not trending down. And, you know, like pandemic had it like a, at an early phase, had like a, a real acute crisis phase that had sort of a long tail slope. I think most people are now in the, the pandemic is over framework. There'll always be a few people who are COVID's not over. But I think we all, at the very least, were out of the acute phase of the pandemic. Those crazification or bonkersification numbers are sticky. We are not, and I, we can fix that problem. Like, it's not like, you know, if, if we have greater problems now with, with mental health, we throw more resources at that. If we have greater problems with addictions or homelessness or gun smuggling or failures in our gun control system, these are all things that have policy answers, but we have an exhausted government, a series of exhausted governments. We have the stupidest political class we've ever had in this country. Everything's memefied. No, we have not yet put our social problems back into a balance. I said before, we're in like a social deficit, right? We're not even balanced yet, let alone starting to roll things back to like a pre-2020 level. And I think this sucks. You know, I was talking, you know, it's all right. By the time this podcast is out, um, depending on when it goes out, the, the Leafs may or may not be eliminated from the playoffs. But we've had a playoff run in Toronto and, you know, tickets are a hot commodity and friends and family have been going to games trying to get tickets. And a conversation that has come up over and over and over is that people won't take the subway to get to the game. For, for, for my for the listeners and viewers here who don't know Toronto, Scotiabank Arena, home of the Maple Leafs and the Raptors, is connected to Union Station. Get out of the subway, up a flight of stairs, up another flight of stairs, and then weirdly down a flight of stairs. Welcome to Scotiabank Arena. It is a three-minute walk. You can drink as much as you want at the game, have some cocktails, have some beers, get on the subway and go home. People won't do it because of all the random killings. Like, if we have sticky social problems that last for a couple of years, that will alter how people think about things for the rest of their lives. Like yeah, two we, or three bad years we, on the TDC, someone 30 years from now will still not be riding the bus. Yeah, that's 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 the thing. Is that will, it only takes six six months to a year for a habit to be formed that potentially has lifelong consequences. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting conversation. You know, I almost, while you're saying that and thinking to myself, man, the coronation was a lost opportunity for us. How so? The coronation, well, this is actually one thing that I kind of wish you'd kind of got had gotten into a little bit more. But the coronation was a classic example of a mass ritual or a mass yeah. uh, experience of where a culture can experience something simultaneously that takes us out of an individualistic and atomized mindset and into a collectivized mindset in order and, and, and you know these types of collective experiences are what creates a national identity it's concept of a community it creates the concept of something greater than yourselves 
And I think that that is actually the root of a lot of our problems. And it was the root of a lot of our problems prior to COVID and COVID just exacerbated and catalyzed them. I think you were the first writer in Canada to publicly identify that too, where you talked about why haven't we mobilized volunteers? Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, the coronation could have been one of those collective moments for us in Canada, but you have, and this comes back to the passports and where the passport stuff isn't stupid and, and actually does have a, a deeper meaning. The coronation could have been one of these collective moments of national identity, but because we are led by a class of people that treats our history and our shared narrative as this sort of like embarrassing anachronism, nobody had the vision to think of it that way. You know what? I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I think there's truth to it, but I also think I don't know right now if you could unify Canadians. Well, no, and I don't the, know if you could this, unify Americans. No, exactly. And this and this this is why something like the coronation could have been used, because it is something that is by nature above partisan considerations, above memification. It, it is meant to be a dignified, solemn religious ritual that everyone yeah. can participate in that's not like it's the only one like if if the flames or the leafs make the stanley cup or something that could be another one another opportunity and perhaps an easier one but the coronation was a lost was a lost opportunity here for canadians to sort of come together and have a real bonding moment over a collective identity issue and we just I, didn't didn't do it we just didn't do it i don't i don't think we're capable of it now i don't know and i'm, I'm not we didn't like try. Who, we didn't try. No, we didn't. But I'm also saying who in Canada would lead that effort? Well, it would have had to have come from the federal government down. Federal government? Justin Trudeau. That 70% of people don't... No, but, like. this, 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 but this could have been the opportunity to get past that. You know what I mean? Like, this could have been like, hey, put your, put your dislike of the federal government aside for 30 seconds. Let's have a big party. Let's have a big coronation concert in every city. Let's 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 have a big celebration. Ooh, but you have a government that would have been like, oh, but then they're going to complain about colonialism and and we're a little uncomfortable with the coat of arms. And let's not do that. I think without though, I without mean, appreciating these sorts of connective connective symbols and identities and issues are the things that actually tie us together as a nation and prevent us from becoming a hyper atomized society where fucking crazy shit happens. Even if we had a government that was willing to take the hit and lead on that, I don't think it would work because I think every op-ed page in the in the universe, social media, all the radio shows uh, would all be, is this appropriate for our country in the year 2023? Let's let's talk about yeah. the legacy of imperialism. I don't think yeah. we're organized like on a societal level right now. I, I noticed this first about the United States years ago, or I remember think about this kind of in the context of uh, the Trump administration while he was still in office. If something terrible happened in America right now, something catac cataclysmic, mm -hmm. the country was able to rally behind George W. Bush after 9-11. Mm -hmm. Sky high approval ratings. Everybody loved him. Briefly, didn't last. I don't think you could do it today. If some cataclysm happened to the United States and Joe Biden climbed on a pile of rubble and, you know, put his arm around a firefighter and grabbed a megaphone and gave a speech. I don't think there'd be a rally effect. We saw a little bit mm -hmm. of one during the pandemic. Um, well, we saw it. We saw it. And then it, then it didn't. It went away. Yeah. We stopped. We stopped banging the pots and pans. 
but also like there was a kind of like a brief moment where um in like i don't I don't know how alberta handled it but like uh there was multi-party consensus on some of the emergency issues in the ontario legislature mm-hmm. basically the three leaders got together and it's like we got to ram through like a bunch of emergency stuff now let's do it as like not as a unity government but like let's do it in it with a united front um you know the snowbirds did their fly past of major canadian cities that was cool mm-hmm. the queen gave a message that actually I did watch. And I, you know, I'm not, mm-hmm. like I said in my dispatch, it, it, it was a beautiful message. Yeah. But and it now, was the right message. It was the perfect message. But now, in a, well, in a weird way, is, maybe the last person who could have done it was the queen. Well, and here's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if the way that London kind of came together during the coronation had their big lunches. So clearly a conscious effort to mm-hmm. um, combat some of these isolation issues. The big lunches, the big helpouts, all that kind of thing. I wonder if London actually weathers the next couple of years better as a result of the coronation. Should we should we find a sociologist in Britain to talk about that? Yes. Yes, we should. The thing I wanted to tell you before suddenly popped into my mind, but it's like 15 minutes out of step now. Do you care? Uh, no, I think we should probably end it there. I think that we're, I think that's a good place to end it. We will find a British sociologist. <laughs> the hotness the one bringing you the hotness yeah i mean okay yeah i mean we might as well wrap it up but um i'm worried about this cop thing because i don't yeah i don't think we've touched bottom yet no no it's interesting it is interesting that it's cops that is worth that is worth pondering about a little bit yeah you know and again there are reasonable explanations for it there's been a lot of anti-police rhetoric in recent years yeah but i Um, I think it would be a mistake to assume that this is politically motivated as we've come to understand politics up until now i can offer an explanation for it in this in the sense of the defund the police stuff but i i agree with you i don't think that's it no i think think it's more elemental yeah i think it is too like i think i really think it's the same thing that has people shooting up shopping malls in texas yeah and here in Canada, it's a little bit different. And it's hard to put a put a name to it because it it's not it's not a phenomenon that we have a name. It's the crazification. Yep. Yeah, our baseline level of bonkers is up, and and it's not going to measure itself in like oh self reported depression or self reported apparently not even suicide. It's it's there's something that feels like it's kind of about society as a whole that feels like it's kind of starting to come apart at the seams. It's 10 murdered cops in the last six or eight months. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the, the sense that we're in a high trust society beginning to fray and it's, it's a bit of an ephemeral thing and it's hard to put your finger on it exactly, but it's there. Well, you know what? We'll end on this. Um, and this is somewhat related to the thing I was meant to tell you, but then forgot about, cause I guess I'm still half uh, jet lagged. Um, one of the things I find very interesting about this moment is let's say, let's use some of the numbers John Wright has given me before somewhere typically between three and 5% of the population, uh, pre-pandemic would have been detached from the mainstream outside the mainstream consensus. Doesn't Mm -hmm. mean they're dangerous. Doesn't mean they're violent. It just means sort of like their, their views and understanding and beliefs are like wildly divergent from where you would find, the overwhelming majority of Canadians fit comfortably in a fairly narrow part of the spectrum that sort of encompasses the left-wing flank of the NDP and the right-wing flank of the Conservatives. Mm-hmm. Overwhelming majority of Canadians exist very comfortably in that part of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. But there's always been people outside of it, left left or right, doesn't matter. Maybe 3%, maybe 5% of the population. Right now, it's closer to somewhere between 10 and 15%, right? 
Mm-hmm. It's not coming down. And <laughs> you can have an attitude of going, well, okay, but like that means 85 to 90% of the population is still very comfortably within that consensus range. Yes. But what I worry about is that people underestimate how little it takes to destabilize something. 10% here, 10% there. More to the point, it's like, I know it's like, it's a quip and I, it's a little bit glib for serious matters, but I've said this many, many times before. If you look at history, when revolutions happen, it's normally not because 90% of people decided they hated the government. It was the 5% of people who really hated the government got organized. You don't need a mass popular movement to destabilize something. You need a relatively small number of people in the right place. Or to be more blunt about this, it only takes one asshole to ruin a great dinner party. Okay, well, I have another sort of theory to all of this. Uh Uh-uh, okay. When you get theories, I get nervous because they're usually even more depressing than mine, but go for it. Is there not a part of you that kind of wants the chaos because you're bored? Me personally, no. No, I know what you mean. That's that's I, that's I that's there's... what I'm sensing. That, like, that's what I'm sensing. I'm sensing that there's something that has been so comfortable about life for so many people for so long, and like, I'm not saying that there hasn't been individual struggle or you can't buy a house or whatever, but I'm just saying like, so everything's been so structured, so orderly, so comfortable, so been in this and this and this and this for so long. There's a part of me that's like hitting on this feeling. It's like. What if it just burned? What if it just um I I come wouldn't that to the... be wouldn't wouldn't that be kind of interesting? Wouldn't that be new? Well, as your friend and business partner, I think I need to interject here and note that Jen Gerson does not endorse this message. Jen <laughs> no. Gerson is Jen commenting Gerson... on a societal trend. Jen Gerson is commenting on a societal trend. Jen Gerson is trying to like extrapolate her feelings in a way that that has societal resonance. But that's what I think part of it is. Like part of the reason why a lot of these numbers aren't going back to normal, because normal is a kind of boring, and people are bored. Um, I I come to a similar conclusion, but I come to it differently. What worries me, and this sort of underwrites all of my "your expectations are a problem" thesis that I've been hammering on for years, mm-hmm. is that people are willing to take risks in a society that they assume to be eternal and stable because they're probably overestimating the resiliency of the, of the systems. Mm-hmm. I don't think most people appreciate how quickly a good thing can turn into a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, like also I say that, like, wouldn't it be more interesting if things were more interesting, but trust me, I wouldn't be a happier individual if one of my children was starving to death. I'm I'm, I'm glad you got that on the record. Yeah. Um, like, uh, like, like t-shirts like, made intellectually i understand that this is a bad impulse and that things being good is rare for humanity and that that is a that is a good thing that we have going we should keep the momentum but there's always this part of the dark side there's the dark side of of the human spirit and the dark side of the human spirit likes chaos for its own sake yeah no you're right i mean i think that i think and i think the collective chaos is sort of starting to rear its head again you know, I did actually touch on this a little bit in my third dispatch from London, not in the direct way, but kind of where I, I talked about some of the criticism of the monarchy. And I said, the reason I find criticism of the monarchy weird is because people tend to invest the bad things that happened in human history in the institutions. Or as I said, actually, 
we have institutions that reflect our human nature and that's why bad things happen so like or better uh, yeah, yet no, we have look, imperfect human beings we, are chaotic we, murder monkeys or better yet we have imperfect institutions to try and curb the worst impulses of humanity and sometimes those institutions fail yeah or yeah or we or we are so removed from the worst impulses of humanity that we forget we forget that they they exist well we we forget what they exist but we also forget why we have the institutions yes you know like you and i talked about this i guess it was would have been a while ago but like every time i heard someone say defund the police i just thought to myself okay you want to talk about police funding you want to talk about different mental health interventions i got a really open mind for that but like you realize that we have tens of thousands of years of human history we've had organized professional policing for about 200 of them and i don't think anyone actually would want to go back to what we had before if they actually knew what that was it would either be anarchy martial law or the rich having enough money for the private security it's the rich having enough money for the private security right and then the private security it wasn't based on justice it would be based on maintaining order and i know people will say that's exactly what we have now oh the police protect the state i don't say policing is perfect i'm just saying you wouldn't like what it used to be any better than what we got and that that's not that's not an excuse to accept the status quo but i think in all things a bit of historical perspective is interesting is useful and that is why i have zero of that let it burn impulse than you have yes but you're an actual conservative um maybe but it's also um when you're trained in history you know what societal failure looks like yes yeah yeah, yeah. well eventually all societies fail that's the other thing but uh no i mean this is this is uh this is did i successfully depress you with my i have a theory as per usual um no but like only because it's i'm already at that i'm already at that headspace okay I, but right. I think i i don't think people want to see things burn not in the not in the sense of chaos i, I don't think people desire chaos but i think there are enough people out there who are angry enough that they're they want the they want those bastards to burn and they aren't thinking through that those fires tend to spread I think that humanity as a whole needs chaos in a while, every once in a while. I think we live for the drama of it. You you could be right to the extent that we might need generational reminders of why we have institutions that try to curb our You say tomato, impulses. I say tomato. You say potato, I say potato. When you start um, singing, I end the podcast. <laughs> well, All right, we well, I'm going to go... I'm going right. to go hire a private security force. Jen's going to go burn down a post office or something. <laughs> and we hope everybody has a wonderful weekend. All right. See ya. Well, again, I'm not sure if I hope you enjoyed that because it was a little grim. But in any case, we hope you enjoyed it enough to listen and to continue listening and to maybe even subscribe if you haven't already. So we can pay off the credit card bill from all of my expenses from the London visit. For Jen Gerson, it's Matt Gurney. This has been the latest episode of the Lines Experimental Podcast.